TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. HBR presents. Hi, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Young Me, and I'm here with Felix and Mihir. Hey, guys. Hey. Hey, Young Me. Hey, Mihir. So I've been doing this really fun thing on Twitter. Felix, by the way, Twitter is this social media application. <laughs> yes. What do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> Which has a bad reputation for really toxic behavior, but my Twitter and Mihir's Twitter as well is lovely. Well, in part, thanks to our listeners. Yes, indeed. I know. But there are only a few weeks left in the decade. Okay. And so I threw out a question for predictions for what the next decade is going to be like. Oh, and they're okay. so good and they're so interesting. I'm going to bring some in. So when we do our prediction episode, oh, I'm yeah. going to share wow. some of these. A decade is hard, though. That's like I know. But as a result, you get some that are a little bit more out there. Yeah. There's some funny ones yeah. about yeah. Mahir. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as everyone's having a good laugh at my expense, yeah. that's all that matters. Okay. Yeah. So on tonight's episode, we're going to do something a little different. Usually, we choose our topics from what we see happening in the world, right. rip from the headlines kind of thing. But tonight, we decided, let's talk about companies that are not necessarily making the news, but perhaps should be. Maybe smaller companies, companies flying under the radar, companies that we find interesting. So how does that sound? That sounds great. Perfect. Let's okay. do it. Great. Okay, me here. I'm going to ask you to go first. Tell us about a company that you are keeping your eye on, you're paying attention to. Well, so, you know, obviously one of the most important issues of our time is climate change. And the question is, how do we address that? And so for a long time, there's been these companies that are about so-called carbon sequestration, about taking mm. carbon out of the air and putting it into the ground, for example. But now, as of last year, we have a company, Carbon Engineering, that's actually founded by David Keith, who's a professor uh, at Harvard, that has figured out direct air capture and then converting carbon dioxide into fuel. And it is amazing. Oh, my goodness. And his results what? came so out. You, no, no, no. Say again. Like, yeah. you, what does it do? It's called direct air capture. That's the okay. name for the technology. And you suck a whole bunch of air out of the sky. And by the way, this is real. 
I just want to be clear. It sounds like it's not real. It's real. He's got a prototype working in British Columbia, and the results have been published in peer-reviewed journals. Yeah, yeah. You suck a bunch of air out of the sky, and it's almost like a paper mill. You take the air, you treat it, the carbon gets sucked out, huh. and then it gets put into limestone pellets, and then it basically gets converted into fuel. And so the amazing thing about this is people have thought it was possible, but they didn't think the cost would ever make any sense. Yeah, yeah. And he is now talking about costs for doing this that are roughly around a dollar or $2 for oh my God. Wow. the cost of taking the amount of carbon dioxide emission from a gallon of gas and repurposing it. Yeah. And it is stunningly powerful. Mm-hmm. It is the most hopeful I have ever felt about like the future of the world. A real solution. A to, real yeah. solution. What's yeah. the commercialization potential of something like that? Well, that's that? it, which is it's not about sequestration. It's not about like pumping it into the ground because then there's no buyers. So this actually is effectively neutral gasoline. So mm-hmm. carbon neutral gasoline. But if we didn't use the gasoline that gets produced, then it's net positive, right? Because remember, the problem with climate change is the stock of carbon. That's true. Right? So if you're just taking it out and then you're basically burning that fuel, that's right. that doesn't really deal with the stock problem. Well, that he, deals with the flow. That's exactly right. Although his technology could be used could to use right? for sequestration. If we then decided not to touch that gasoline. I think you're right, which is the real problem solution is, of course, to reduce. But I found the commercialization possibility, which is you have buyers, right? Uh-huh. So the problem with carbon yeah. sequestration, who's buying? Because yeah. you're just putting it that's into the right. ground. And this is actually a commercial endeavor. And you could imagine huh. people using the huh. gasoline. Whenever I hear about ideas like this, I got to admit, my reaction is mixed. And it's mixed in part because of skepticism, but it's also mixed because you often meet people who believe in climate change but are unwilling to really do anything about it because they believe science will come along and just come up with a solution. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's so funny, And yeah. so there's almost a part of me that thinks whenever we throw out these it's early stage ideas, it really gives fodder to people to not take immediate action because then they can say, well, yeah. we can just kick it down the road because scientists are working on amazing technology that's going to take the problem away. Yeah, I totally get that. We don't want it to kind of become blindly optimistic. But there's enough real stuff here. And people have been talking about this kind of jazz for a long time. And mm-hmm. it's all a little yeah, bit divorced from guy. reality. Yeah. There's a guy who's got a guy. Yeah. Who's got- <laughs> yeah. But this really feels real to me. And I think your concern, Young Me, unlike, say, 10 years ago when this was a matter of debate, now that we know that the climate can change in much more violent ways, in much shorter periods of time than we really ever thought possible. Even if we have some technology that deals with the flow problem, there's still like huge amounts of pressure to reduce carbon emissions, to come up with new technologies to really deal with the stock Absolutely. problem. And we've talked about this before on the podcast, which is you need things, you need carbon taxes, which I all still believe. Yep. But this is like a ray of hope in a different direction, yep. which I thought was really yeah. exciting. Yeah. Wow, interesting. Okay, Good. Felix, you have one? Yes, I have one. Uh, so I don't know if you had seen this announcement. Uber told everyone that they're creating something that is called Uber Money. Mm-hmm. And you would think, oh my God, 
God, this is a company that does very many different things, but Uber money? And it's basically, the idea is that the drivers, among other people, would have uh, bank accounts with Uber. Yeah. And whenever you get paid, it would be deposited in these accounts. And you ask, like, how's that possible? Like, Uber doesn't even have a banking license. Yeah. And I think the phenomenon that I find interesting in this banking as a service. So this is growing very quickly now, where in the background you have... Lots of surprisingly small companies, actually. Solaris is the dominant one in Germany. You have Green Dot here in the U.S. And they essentially allow you to have white-label banking solutions. So you can imagine, just like you used to have a credit card with your favorite department store, you now have banking-like relationships with many of the companies where you buy products or where you shop. or And that, to me, is super, super fascinating. My sense is, at least in a retail banking sense, this will change banking completely because banking will not be the specialized outlet. Banking will be a function that gets attached, a service that gets attached to lots and lots of businesses that you interact with. You know, in recent weeks, Google has announced checking accounts. Facebook is backing off of Libra and is now talking about Facebook Facebook, Pay. Apple, of course, introduced its credit card with Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about this is the payment industry is super complicated And it's got so many different layers. And usually the way we think about value creation in a really fragmented, complex industry is through disintermediation. Someone's going to come in and is going to disintermediate. This is the imposition of yet another set of parties. So Mm. this is almost like more intermediation because what they're doing is they're taking existing rails and they're saying the user interface for all of these checking accounts and everything has been really not that great. Yeah. Right. In many ways, Apple Wallet, yeah. it's saying we need one more layer on top of this. But I think in a way, this is, I think, what's both exciting about it, but also frustrating about it, right? Which is, I think this is an artifact of the fact that we don't allow banking entry in the United States anymore. And yeah. so you have all these things being piled on. Yeah. Here's what's happened after the global financial crisis, right? So regulations around the world have been really, really different. And in the U.S., we've basically prevented entry. Mm-hmm. In other parts of the world, like the UK, there's all this exciting neo stuff banks going. Yeah. The neo banks, left and They're neo banks, <laughs> and in a way, I feel like this stuff you're talking about, like banking as a service that's being layered on, it's an artifact of the fact that we don't allow entry and we don't allow true new entrants. So I find both of your views so interesting because my intuition was exactly the opposite. I think it will mean, in the end, you don't really have a bank anymore. Because you will have 18 accounts with the stores that where you regularly shop to begin with. Like, what can the retail bank do? Say you're one of these Uber drivers and you have an account with Uber. Like, what is it that your traditional retail bank can do for you that Uber money cannot do? I think there's a layer of the movement of money, yeah. which is so heavily regulated and requires any company to jump through Dozens and dozens of hoops having to do with money laundering and regulations. And so for a player to come in and figure all of that out, it's really, really hard. Hmm. So my intuition is that this thing is going to get much more complex. You know, the open banking movement in Europe. So Europe is moving toward open banking, which means if you have a checking account with a bank, no startup has direct access to your bank account. That's changing now with open banking. The permeability of these accounts that you hold at different banks is really going to change. 
And so you'll get lots and lots of companies getting into this space. In my intuition is that this is going to get much more complicated before you see a simplification. And we shouldn't forget that there is good reason to have a regulated structure yeah. underneath it yes. all, right? Yeah. So with deposit taking, yeah. <laughs> you know, and with know your customer kind of rules and with money laundering, there is reason underneath it all to uh-huh. have this. Yeah. This just goes to your point, Young Me, which is payments is so interesting. This short conversation is not really doing it justice. We need to do yeah. a whole segment on this yeah. Yeah. and really try to maybe pick apart why it is that every player under the sun is trying to grab yeah. some piece of this. Okay. <laughs> so. Your company? Yeah. A little lighter tone. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> okay. So as you know, um, we are in the middle of a deluge of streaming content with Disney+. Plus. Netflix, of course, Apple TV Plus, and so on. And perhaps lost in the shuffle a little bit is a company called Quibi. It's a company founded by Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman. The point of differentiation for Quibi, because you're like, why Why do we need another? So the point of differentiation is that all the content is specifically made to be seen on mobile devices. So you can't watch it on your TV. Everything is for a mobile device, and every piece of content is 10 minutes long or less. Hmm. So what kind of content are we talking about? Well, Steven Spielberg is doing a horror series that apparently can only be viewed at night. Mihir <laughs> um, is looking at me so funny. <laughs> well, no, I'm just struck by well, how you do that. They, kind know, of, they know. Yeah, they must know. It's on your phone, so they know the time, right? Chrissy Teigen is doing something for them called Chrissy's Court. It's kind of a Judge Judy kind of thing. And that one I've actually seen snippets <laughs> out because Chrissy Teigen, I follow her on social media. Mm. But Kevin Hart, Tyra Banks, Jennifer Lopez are all doing shows. I don't know. What do you think? Here's why I'm paying attention. It's the only startup in the space. Every other entrant is, you know, Has Amazon, around, yeah. Apple launching yeah. its service, yeah. Disney launching its service. Yeah. This is a real startup. And they are committed to a very different kind of storytelling. And so they have told creators, for example, if you have a story that is going to take two hours to tell, then you have to think of it in terms of eight-minute chapters. And That's so exciting. It's kind of interesting. But it's it's just so hard. It's so hard. Yeah. I mean, look, we're just saturated right now with content. Yeah. But still, keep it's an eye on it. Yeah. yeah, I like it. I like when it. will it start? Do we know? They say the first half of next year. So, okay, let's take a break. Be right back. Okay, Felix, do you have another one? Yes, I do. The company is a company out of Finland, Mass Global, and Mass as in M-A-A-S, Mobility as a Service is the idea. And the app that is, I think, much better known is called WIM. And what they do is they aggregate transportation options in your city, and they make it available via a subscription service. So their top-tier subscription would typically be around 500 euros, mm-hmm. which is roughly the cost of owning a car in Europe per month. And for the 500 euros, you can use any sort of public transportation in your city. You can use any taxi in your city. You can use bikes. Whatever transportation options 
they can sign up. They will make it available as a neutral platform. Wait, even including private companies? Even including private companies. In fact, the way it works in Helsinki, when you have their top-tier plan, every day you can choose, this is a day where I'm going to use taxis for free, or this is the day where I'm going to rent a car. And you pick. You can't rent a car every day or something like that. You could rent a car every day. So the choice is yours every day. It's in Helsinki, it's in Athens, it's in a bunch of places. And they have plans to come to America sometime next year. So I guess what I'm trying to think through, Felix, is this feels, it feels like it's bundling, right? Yes. But so what's the value of the bundle or why? So one is you will never, ever buy a ticket, Right? Any form of transportation that you see, you see a car, you see hmm. an e-scooter, you want to go with a taxi. Payment is never a concern of yours. It comes with really valuable information. I want to go from A to B. Like, what's the most right. efficient way to do that? That's really interesting. It's thoughtful bundling in an interesting way. So usually when you see an aggregator like that come in and be successful, it's because there's so much complexity in the market. It's like you know, the first time you used Expedia or something, you know? <laughs> yes. And to think that we have come so far so quickly. Yeah. Because transportation used to be a pretty easy, straightforward thing for all of us. Yeah. And now the way we move from place to place has become so unbundled. I mean, we've talked about this before on the podcast. Yeah. That there's potentially real value to a player coming in and saying, hey, not only am I going to provide you with a yeah. set of choices, but we recognize that your preferences are going to change from day to day and even hour to hour. Yeah. <laughs> but with all of these things, right, it totally depends on how comprehensive they can make yes. this. Yeah, yeah right? exactly. And how much I value the optionality across the modes, right? That's what I'm struggling with is I'm trying to think mm-hmm. about how much I value the optionality. Oh, today I want to do the scooter. Well, think about how many different modes of transportation do you use on a regular basis? And maybe also the European heritage, I think, is yes. often that you have quite complicated public transportation setups. Mm-hmm. So even when I go to I go back to Zurich often and I know the city pretty well. When I stand in front of one of these ticket machines, I'm always mildly at a loss yeah. what yeah. exactly I have to. So this I'm idea, so glad to hear you say that because that's how I feel. So it's <laughs> <laughs> so true. There's always like these zones, and are you in yeah. the zone? Are you out? You need to count stations. Yeah. It's like. It's mildly insane. So true. That's interesting. So that's yeah. one to keep an eye on. That's one okay. to keep an eye on. Okay, I have a company I need to ask you guys about. Okay. Oyo Hotels. Ooh. Okay, they can't see your facial expressions. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a hotel chain. Started in India. Launched about seven years ago, I think. And it already claims to be the second largest hotel chain in the world. I mean, think about that for a second. It's certainly the fastest growing. And it's currently valued at about $10 billion. Dollars. They operate in hundreds of cities around the world, mostly in Asia and the Middle East, and they recently entered the U.S. And so don't be surprised if you live in the U.S. if you start to see Oyo hotels start to pop up everywhere. So the original business model made a lot of sense. Yeah. So in India... There are lots and lots of these tiny... Like mom and pop. Yeah, cheap, no-name hotels. And the problem is if you book a room in any one of them, you show up, you never know what you're going to get. And in some cases, you can be really negatively surprised. So the OYO model was to aggregate all of these small, no-name hotels under a single brand umbrella, put them all on the same platform on an app, and have some minimum quality standards. So if you book a room in any one of them, you kind of, you know, you have some sense of what you're going to get. 
And so it sounds really fantastic. And it, the thing just started growing yeah. astronomically. But if you look beneath the hood of this thing, I think there are just so many warning signs. Yeah, that's the problem now. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So you it's agree. Feeling, it's kind of feeling yes. wee-worky. This yeah. is really wee-worky. <laughs> that's, this... that's a good word. We should be <laughs> yeah. <doing that>. Yes. <laughs> Something's wee-worky. So one of the ways they've grown is by signing up lots and lots of hotel owners by guaranteeing them a certain amount of exactly. revenue. So they'll say to a hotel owner, oh, you made X dollars a month last month. We will guarantee you 3X or whatever. And in exchange, we will handle all of your booking. All of the pricing will handle everything. What that means is that Oyo has essentially decided to take on all of the occupancy risk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In addition, they've begun investing in real estate. And the original problem you described, which is so important and interesting, actually is not getting solved as well, which is, am I going to get the quality of some minimal type when I book at one of these places? And they're losing, they've lost their eye on that ball because they're doing all this other crazy stuff. It's created a whole bunch of problems just at the ground level. So one example is in hotels, they are not able to fill them up. And so what they've done is they've just dramatically slashed the prices on some of these rooms. So <laughs> mm. a budget hotel in Texas that used to go for a room that used to go for 60 bucks a night, they'll post for 15 bucks a night. Yeah. And that creates problems because when you post a hotel for $15 a night, it attracts a completely different kind of clientele. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, how are they paying for all of this? Their biggest investor? <laughs> Uh, let me guess. <laughs> Soft Does it bank. start with an S? Yes. yes. Yeah. Soft bank. Uh-huh. It's like it's so WeWorky. It's all so WeWorky. And a lot of implicit leverage because you end up having all these commitments, uh, kind of business models straying all over the place. Actually, kind of a core idea that's kind of nice and interesting. Mm-hmm. And then rebranding yourself as a technology company or as a we company or as whatever kind of company. And, of course, the rush to scale. At all costs. And it feels terrible. And it, it, the interesting thing is this last thing you said, I think, young me, which is the spillover effects of, well, wait a second, what's going to happen? So now you're, A, you're letting out hotel rooms at $15 a night, clientele's change, hotels yeah. change, yeah. and the whole competitive market gets screwed up a little bit. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that yeah, is course. really, As always. when you have like irrational pricing, you have like irrational players in pricing, then everything gets screwed up. Yeah. I love this point that you just made me hear. I think we often don't, you know, we think about, oh, we're going to get to amazing scale and then wonderful things will happen. And we know that promise in a narrow sense is not right. But also in the meantime, Lots of other casualties. The businesses that used to compete at seventy, eighty dollars yeah. now yeah. have this irrational competitor because we all seem to believe building amazing scale in no time at all is pretty much the only way you get anyone excited about any business. Yeah. I wish we would go back to thinking like what's the core value that you create? And then sometimes that core value implies amazing scale and very many times it will not, which doesn't mean it's not a worthwhile thing to do. Not every business lends itself to amazing scale. And being overcapitalized disguises so much truth because your point about growth at all costs, what ends up happening is you end up essentially buying market share. You're buying a desired market outcome And you're obscuring what the true market dynamic is underneath Mm. that and how much value you're actually creating. In this particular case, 
there's now sort of a renewed emphasis, I guess, internally at the company at profitability and like, mm-hmm. okay, maybe we shouldn't be guaranteeing <laughs> yeah. revenue. So, but the way they've handled this is they just stop making their guaranteed revenue payments to yeah. a lot of these hotel oh, owners. They just cut them off. That's and so terrible. there are lawsuits going on. So it's one I'm keeping an eye on in particular because I think over the next few years, you're going to see their presence in our country go up really yeah. expand. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mihir, you have one? So, um, you know, again, I'm kind of enamored by some of these moonshots. And so the one that I got enamored of recently is, this is also, by the way, a counter to my cranky old man image. I was going to say. I, I know. I it's think good. This See, is I'm a- more than what I seem. So there are these now electric-powered vertical takeoff jets. Oh, my God. <laughs> a jet pack. <laughs> Not a jet pack. These are vertical takeoff and landing electric-powered vehicles. Vertical takeoff like a helicopter. Yes. Four or five people in it. So how is it not like a helicopter? Uh, well, there uh, it's electric motors, and it's literally a vertical takeoff. There's no whirling motors. What's There's it no called whirling. again? The one that's interesting is Lilium. Oh, Lilium Death Machine. Is that what it's called? <laughs> Look, I just want to say, go to the website and watch the video. And it is amazing what they've already accomplished. Actually, they've actually kind of accomplished it technologically, but they got to get the cost down, like dramatically down. And once they get the cost dramatically down, this could be like the future of urban transport in a really interesting way. <laughs> Don't you need like a landing pad? Well, the point of vertical uh, takeoffs is yes, but you need much smaller landing pads. I feel like the room for error here is very small, right? I mean, it's like a helicopter. Are they quiet? They're very quiet. Are they flying like 20 feet off the ground? No, or are they no, flying no, 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 no. They're flying like 500 feet off the ground. Oh, my goodness. Yep. It is so exciting. And so, <laughs> again, it's attracted a lot of funding. Lilium is one of the most prominent ones, but there are others. And again, in terms of solving some of these urban transport things, it is really, really exciting. And that if the cost, it's now not a question of the technology. It's a question of getting the cost down. Yeah. If you just go to the website, check out the video. The video is so good. Oh, <laughs> Did you fly? One or no, 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 they're they're in prototype. Looks like the Jetsons. It is I straight like out of the Jetsons. If this were an Elon Musk project, he would be so down on <laughs> that. Could be true, <laughs> actually. <laughs> we will be on our e scooters, he will yeah. wave down on us. On the other hand, like, if this were Apple, are you kidding? Okay, He'd be okay, okay let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, picks. What do you got, young me? Oh, I got a good one. I have a podcast. Ooh, Ooh. okay. Okay, be open-minded. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Dolly Parton's America. No. It's so good. I had the same recommendation. No way. Oh, my God. That's never <laughs> happened. <laughs> so, Felix, you and I will both talk about this. So, here's what I will say. Even if you don't like her, first of all, what's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> well, you should. And you need to try you again. Maybe should go see someone about no, that. No, and you should try again because I think people yeah. have an impression from a long time ago. That's yeah. Right. yeah, but I That's think the too. first three episodes in particular are kind of astonishingly great. Don't you agree? Yeah, because it's about her and her place in American culture, but it's also about the country and about a particular moment in time, and it's just. It's so good. The one caveat I will say, and I'm curious, Felix, if you agree, the narrator, who's the guy from Radiolab, I think. Yes. uh I had a very mixed reaction to him. And the reason I kind of have a love-hate thing going with him is because the interviews are so good and the music is so good and the characters in the podcast are so good that every time he inserts himself... (laughs) 
I find it really irritating because I want more of what's happening in the background. His voice is almost yeah. competing. Yeah. And sometimes he's halfway through an interview and he'll interject. And I'm like, no, no, just let, let it keep going. But it's so good. So it's fascinating to me that you say this because I was going to say the exact opposite. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so part of what I loved about it, so it often starts in a way that I think is most fascinating if you really love Dolly Parton to begin with and mm-hmm. you're interested in her life and what she has done. But I think what's really... So so he's uh, Judd Abumrad and then I think Shima Olie. I'm not sure how to say her last name. Uh, they're the narrator and producer for the show. And I thought the most miraculous thing for me was how they take these observations from her life and then they make it into something entirely different. So give you one example. There's, They're going to Dollywood and they're looking at Tennessee Home mm-hmm. and then there's this twist that has to do with him. When his dad mentions that actually the home that Dolly Parton grew up in is pretty much like the home I grew up in. And his dad, I think for the first time in his life, talks about the fact that he goes all the way back to Lebanon. The family grew up in Lebanon. And so maybe in a way... Dolly Parton's music is immigrant music mm-hmm. because there's something about the immigration experience that where you think back to that place where you come from and how far you are from where you grew up. That's the most magical part to me about the series. It's these little observations that then begin to speak to something super interesting in general. Hmm. So the thing that he loved the most was the part that I disliked <laughs> the most. But I mean, but think about that for a second. Yeah. It just gives you a sense of you can come at it in so many different ways. Because I mean, I just want more Dolly, honestly. Just yeah. more Dolly. Well, All I've it? been doing is playing Dolly Parton music. Oh, Jolene. Oh yeah. my God. My yeah. family's like, what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting thing to me about this is that there was a moment when Dolly Parton was a caricature. And they talk about that. Oh, is that right? Yes. yes. Yeah. It's so how, interesting, yeah. right? I mean, yes, that's I, right. I'm looking forward to this. This yeah. is a great yeah. recommendation. So good. Really, and it's so a double good. recommendation. I know. I know. That's the first time, right? I think that's never, never happened. That's that never, never happened. happened. Wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, I'll, I will try to bring some variety. I know. <laughs> so um, my recommendation is related to my passion for bread. Okay. I like bread. <laughs> Okay, And I think I've kind of come up with this theory about bread, which is when you're a kid, you want like soft bread and you like want wonder bread and like you don't even like the crust. And then as you get older, you graduate to bread. This is maybe a little bit of an American thing. You graduate to bread with a crust. (laughs) You graduate to bread with a crust. And you appreciate baguettes and you start to like love bread. Oh, really crusty bread. Yeah. And then you reach, I think, the final stage, Uh which is you reach Nordic bread. Scandinavian bread is amazing. And it is, it's a little Germanic also. German bread, Scandinavian bread is so good. It is nutty. It is rye based. It is so flavorful. And as a kid, it's the kind of thing you would hate. And as you get Mm. older, you just come to appreciate that really hearty, earthy, nutty bread. And I think it's fantastic. And there is a startup which is called Olenstein which is a Danish bakery, which is now expanding around the world. And their bread is spectacular. And it mm. is really hearty, rye. You know what yeah, I'm talking yeah. about, Felix? Oh, I, yeah. I grew up with... You must have, I didn't have the American have the Wonder Bread experience. <laughs> Actually, you know, texture is so important with food. I think we don't understand as much about texture that we can. But that's the best thing about eating bread when you're really young because you have to spread and you don't really have the teeth to really do anything with so you keep it in your mouth 
for hours and you soak the thing in your saliva until what it's childhood. <laughs> <laughs> What is happening right now? <laughs> I don't know. But I think if you're eating that kind of Germanic Scandinavian bread, that's what you're doing. Yeah. Because you have to work your way through it because it's, it's, it's nutty. It's and a It's a labor of love. And, and I have to tell you, so Olenstein, there are several locations in New York now. And it's when you're ready to grow up past the French bread and past the American bread, you're ready to reach the next level. It's Scandinavian bread. And I would recommend Olenstein. You're both looking at me. I have nothing to add to this conversation. <laughs> go, go to Olenstein right away. Okay. Go to Olenstein. Have some Scandinavian bread. Okay. That's it for this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This is After Hours from the HBR Podcast Network. I actually went to Maison or Eric Kaiser in Paris, yeah. which is it's called Eric Kaiser yeah, I think, in Paris. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't quite as good as the Maison Kaiser. I mean like Oh really? Yeah. Maison Kaiser is very close to what you get in Paris. Yeah. It's like yeah. the same level. Yeah. Which is crazy. Yeah. I can't believe you guys are continuing the conversation about bread. You gotta try Olenstein. I'm so excited for you to go to Olenstein. Where is it? So there's one on um I gotta go tomorrow morning. Ryan Park. There's one on Brian Park. Guys, we gotta go. And then there's one more on the Upper East and there's one more on the Upper West. Mm, and the price is right. It's How like, do you spell it? It's O L E and Steam. <laughs> she looks at us oh like God. we're okay. crazy people. All right. Are we done? Yeah. Okay. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more.